Welcome and thank you for joining us for the relaunch of Homeland, the podcast. My name is Frank Foreman and I'm the host of this podcast and chapter lead for the Southern California Regional Alumni Chapter of the Center for Homeland Defense and Security at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. Before we begin with the relaunch of this show, I wanted to extend my sincere appreciation for hanging in there while I dealt with some personal issues. So thank you. Now, it's been several months since we released our last show, and I wanted to bring us back to highlighting the strong work of the center's alumni. In this episode, I have the opportunity to talk not to just one or two of our fellow alum. Rather, I have the pleasure of speaking with four, Stephen Polunsky, Will Pilkington, Meredith Bastiani, and Angie English. This team was part of the first cohort of Advanced Thinking in Homeland Security, also known as HSX. They came together to address the delay in public health alerts of communicable disease outbreaks. They specifically focused on accessing real-time health data and crafted five recommendations to enhance disease detection within the United States. I think the best way to understand the breadth of this project is to get right to it and start my conversation with the team from One Health Alert System. Okay, I want to welcome Stephen Polensky, Will Pilkington, Meredith Bastiani, and Angie English to Homeland the Podcast. Will, why don't we go ahead and start off with you giving a little background about who you are and what you do, and, and we'll go ahead and get a basic introduction from each one of you today. My name is Will Pilkington. I'm a local public health officer in North Carolina. I've been in the same local health department as the public health officer for 37 years have a strong interest in health alert systems. I've been doing a lot of research on that over the years, including my time at the Naval Postgraduate School before and after, and continue to work on that with special interest in how we can speed up health alerts. Great. Stephen, uh, what's your background? I'm Stephen Polensky. I'm at the Alabama Transportation Institute at the University of Alabama, where I direct the Transportation Policy Research Center. My background is, is both academia and legislative branch of government, where I directed the transportation committees in both houses of the Texas legislature, as well as the Homeland Security and Business and Economics Committees in the Texas Senate. And then I was at Texas A&M for five years doing transportation policy research. Wow, pretty extensive background. Meredith Bastiani, how about you? Hi, I'm Meredith Bastiani. I currently serve as manager of the Child Care Subsidy Program for New York State. Uh, I have an extensive background in human services and government, especially dealing with vulnerable populations such as juvenile justice, early childhood, and people with disabilities. In my other life, I've got 20 plus years as a volunteer firefighter and EMT, and I'm currently commissioner of the Del Mar Fire District in upstate New York. Well, that's something each of us have in common since I've been with the fire department for 27 years. Angie English. <laughs> Angie, how about you? Hi, I'm Angie English, and um, I have 26 years in state government in Texas. I started out with looking at community mental health services in Texas, and then spent eight years in the governor's office as the executive director for the Governor's Committee on People with Disabilities. And during that time, we had Hurricane Katrina and Rita in Texas, and I became very interested in how we can be more inclusive and more prepared in relationship to including people with disabilities in our emergency response. 
I went on to, to go to the executive leaders program at NPS and uh, the master's program. I also have a licensure as a professional counselor, so I'm very interested in the social psychology related to Homeland Security. And I'm also a licensed drone pilot. I have my Part 107 certification. Angie, you cover a lot of the different areas I've had the pleasure to play in. So I'm really happy to have you here as well. What we're trying to do here on this podcast is we're, we're trying to highlight different programs and different concepts that have been coming out of the advanced thinking and Homeland Security at the Center for Homeland Defense and Security at Naval Postgraduate School. We already uh, did talk with a gentleman who created the K-12 school shooting database, extremely inspirational program that they came up with and something that I think is really good for the public's knowledge and safety for when it comes to school shootings and, and such. Your guys' program really interested me as well, having a One Health Alert system and identifying or doing a rapid detection for disease outbreak. I'm not a public health official, and it's an area that stimulated a lot of questions for me. So I really appreciate all of you being here today. What I'm hoping for is maybe, uh, Will, you can give us a big overview of what your guys' program you developed actually consists of and the intent behind it. Okay, i start a little bit at the beginning because what we have in this country is alerts that are given out right now by the Centers for Disease Control, two systems. One is called the Health Alert Network and the other is called EPIX. EPIX is not necessarily confirmed disease outbreaks, so it's a little bit ahead of the curve. High alerts are confirmed health issues that are usually laboratory confirmed. The problem with both systems is the lag from the actual beginning of an outbreak to the notification is somewhere in the neighborhood of 18 to 26 hours. So the Department of Homeland Security has been concerned about that lag time and how long it takes us to know that we have something going on anywhere in this country. What they did was issue a challenge for anyone who thought they could cut that curve and get that time down. It was a essentially a $100,000 challenge that five semifinalists would be picked, put into a virtual accelerator, they called it, and the five of us would then emerge as a winner, and the winner would be a $200,000 winner. We entered that challenge as a team. We, HSX, we saw the challenge, said that looks like something we can take on. The four of us were the ones who volunteered to take it on and began working on what we could do to develop a better system. We had a system here in our two counties that we serve that could get it down to about 12 to 18 hours at that time. So what we were looking for is something that would get us below 12 to 18 hours. And what we had was a symptom-based system. And it was all automated and computerized. So we would get reports each day from school nurses, physicians, and other sources. And that information would go into a central database. That database would print out each evening into all the recipients' mailboxes exactly what was going on in our community. But again, that was about a 12 to 18-hour lag. So what we said is, well, maybe we can take that system and break it down. And so that's what we did. We took that system, worked on it, and tried to see what we could do with this. That's the basis of where we started and where we are or where we were at that time at the very outbreak of the, I guess if you use the word outbreak, at the very outbreak of our ideas of what we thought we would do. Uh, who, who wants to take it from here? Let me just stick in. This is Stephen. What I brought to this team was that in the transportation field, we've been working 
with social media and ways to identify trends in real time and translate those into actionable items. And that there's a, a large body of research and we were able to take that body of research and translate it into what we were doing with the One Health Alert system so that we could augment and speed up, reduce that, that time gap that Will was talking about and get information in a quick fashion and in a way that could be assimilated and put directly to work to identify when an epidemic or an outbreak is occurring. It's just one input, but it's another way to shave seconds off and minutes off of what we're trying to do to assure public health. So with, with that, oh, oh, Meredith, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, based on what Steve was saying, I think one of the things that kind of brought us together as a team was not just the interest, as Will said, it was kind of, he, he sent out this notice and said, there's this challenge, I'm wondering who's interested in, in applying to work on it. But it was in part, I think, the skill sets that we brought. So Stephen was talking about the fact that he's been looking at real-time data analysis in terms of transportation. I've been doing work in terms of predictive analytics in using data that we have already in our computer systems and seeing how it can detect patterns of fraud when it comes to public welfare dollars. So there was kind of an interesting nexus where I think we all brought little pieces from outside in our own everyday work that then tied in nicely to looking at how do we take what we know and apply it, at least in my case, to a model that I don't know, which is the public health field. But having Will as that expert in the room to say, here are the critical elements that you need to consider, really let us use those skills in a, in a different way than I would have expected coming into it. Great. Angie, do you have anything you'd like to add? Yes. Well, so I want to talk just a minute about why we went and named the project One Health and just talk about what, what is One Health. So One Health is a triad that says if we have healthy people, healthy animals, and healthy environment, we have One Health. Not only in our country and in many other countries, they tend to look at human health as a separate type of health versus environmental health or animal health. In actuality, what we've learned is that six out of 10 human diseases have a zoonotic etiology and that half of the world's emerging zoonotic diseases are linked to changes in land use. So anytime you have a change in land use, it is a driver for a cascading effect related to diseases. And so the interesting thing about our project is that we included veterinarians in our project. If you think about bioterrorism, many of the bioterrorism diseases have a zoonotic etiology as well. The other thing that we were looking at, not only this triad, but we were looking at trying to be more proactive versus reactive. And that forced us to look at weak signals, trying to pick out the weak signals in a vast amount of data or noise so that we could actually pinpoint a bio threat in neural time. And a couple of things that we did in order to see if we could recognize those weak signals is we tapped into the local intelligence of the community and we leveraged those extended networks. As I said, we included veterinarians into the networks that we were looking at we also developed multiple scenarios and tested them. And we would say, okay, this scenario, then what? And use that then what paradigm to see how we could chase out the different situations. And then we trusted seasoned uh, intuition for people that were in those networks, people who had been in the environment where they would 
the, have the intelligence to see different kinds of potential diseases, we were able to bring those people in, as well as using some biosensing mechanisms that I'm, I'm sure Will is going to tell us about. I had one more thought I wanted to throw in. Doing this project while we were in the HSX program gave us an unparalleled opportunity to bounce ideas off of faculty and our cohort classmates and other people as well. So, for example, Dr. Rodrigo Nieto Gomez sat down with us several times and we went over ideas and, and some of the various aspects. Some of the things that we had learned in the master's program or in the HSX program we applied in the course of this research. I hope Meredith will talk a little bit about some of the work that she put in in developing the proposal and the wireframe and the processes that were used to get there. That's a really nice question that I do have for Meredith. But before we get into the process that you guys went into this, did you look at the current systems that are available or did you start from scratch? Like there was no, not thinking outside of the box, but you destroyed the box and you went from the very beginning or how did you come about to come up with the processes that you actually did? Did you evaluate the current systems or what was that like for you? Well, I think the One Health system is something novel. There are not a lot of public health systems that are including that looking at the environment and looking at the animal health systems. So that was a novel idea. But also, Will can talk more about the daily disease report. So we were looking at some tried and tested mechanisms as well as some of the other novel data that was coming in. And I think both added to the ability at the end of our project to lessen that time that Will was talking about by great detail. Meredith, might as well go right with the processes that you that you were working on. Can you go a little deeper into that? Sure. So one of the things that Steve mentioned earlier is we were asked to present a design. We needed to show that we actually had thought through what this would look like, how it would operate. And one of the things that that led to was using something that I see in my day-to-day -day work, which is when I have IT people develop something for me, they give me a wireframe. It shows me a little bit of the look and feel of what something would be. And I realized we were talking about creating something, but we weren't able to take it off the paper and pick it up and manipulate it and see how it would work. So I actually started researching how do developers create a wireframe so that there's a usable model of something that you can walk through, you can click on buttons and see, here's how one button might take you to the next screen. So I actually went online, evaluated a bunch of different programs, picked the one that seemed the most intuitive to me, and taught myself how to build a wireframe. The value in that was that we were able to take the process from what had been a bunch of sticky notes all over a piece of paper. Will and I sat in the lobby one day during an in-residence period and just kind of walked through and I said, okay, if you click on this button, what do you need next? And then we scribbled on the next post-it page. So I had a whole stack of those and I was actually able to take them and create something that somebody could click through online and say, okay, we've identified a threshold of potential disease here's the alert someone gets. You get the alert, what happens next? And I think that kind of creativity, being able to say there are no barriers on what we think we can do, we're just going to go out and pick up the skills we need to, that was one of the unique things that came from the HSX experience, is I never would have thought I have the, the capacity to build a wireframe, and I wouldn't have even realized how important it was to pick up that item I wanted to create and, and theoretically kind of play with it and manipulate it. And to what Angie was saying earlier, I think that's really how we came up with this novel approach because we never said something didn't belong. 
we took every idea that came up and we said, okay, let's evaluate this one. Let's turn it over. Let's turn it inside out. Let's see what it might do to perform. And that whole piece is about what do veterinarians have to contribute to this One Health approach ended up being a very valuable piece of the puzzle in the end. Okay, so you said you said a lot there, and and the wireframe concept, I would, <laughs> I would like to little know a little more about that, but. Moving a little forward, and you came up with this program, and one of the things to alert people, how, Will, you might be the best to answer this, but are there systems in place that the One Health Alert system is tapped into? Is this a brand new system to convey information, or is it used by existing agencies as an input for their dissemination of information? So what we have in place in our country right now is laboratory confirmed diagnoses or physician diagnoses. The best source of initial information on an outbreak comes at the first point of contact with the healthcare system. So that initial diagnosis data is the best data. The problem is that, is that we don't have health exchange networks anywhere in this country that link with other exchange networks. So when a physician in Oklahoma City diagnoses a fever of 104 and thinks they have Ebola, that doesn't link throughout our nation's system in any way. That stays within their own electronic health record until they laboratory confirm whatever disease they're dealing with. What we were challenged with was given the limitations of the existing systems, what would might work? The, the Department of Homeland Security had the idea and the thought that predictive text analytics might work. In other words, looking at all the social media chatter that was going on, pulling out significant words like feel like crap uh, would start to tell you that there was something going on in a selected area in the country. And you started seeing that in different groups, you could see something and you could start to see it within a few hours. As my team members said earlier, we learned really quickly that that system probably would not work because of what we learned in HSX about how social networking works. And the, and the ability to tap into that. We had had the privilege and um, somewhat an honor to deal with and hear from Tom Chi from Google, who talked to us about how to downsize a problem and develop innovation. And one of the things that we were challenged with immediately was, okay, they have all this information on these social media networks. How can we get in and into any of that? And Tom was very quick to tell us, you won't and you can't. By the time that we will give you that information, it's the same three-day period. So we threw out the idea of predictive text analytics really quickly. And as Meredith said, that's when we moved into the idea of what can we do with predictive analytics, with the, the whole idea of, is there somebody out there that's got this down and knows how to do it? And we found a company called Javion, who was willing to work with us, who did predictive text analytics for hospitals. So they could tell hospitals when patients are going to come back and try to save them money for, for Medicare and other insurers they deal with who don't like for patients to come back into the hospital. So we looked at their predictive text analytics capabilities, said, would you work with us? And they said, yes, they would. In fact, they gave us almost a work-for-free deal and became somewhat of an outside business partner in our idea. That gave us then the idea to look at if we can figure out a way to cut the time down first, and then we can figure out a way to add the predictive text analytics. We not only can tell you you've got something going on quickly, we can also tell you you're going to have it going on in nine months, 12 months, 14 months, 
from now, which we've never had the ability to do almost anywhere in the world, much less in this country. It's not possible to do that at this point in time. So that was the idea we decided to push. And we presented that idea to the Department of Homeland Security as part of our initial phase of this challenge. They thought that was the One Health concept added in, as Angie talked about, they thought that was the a novel approach. And so they selected us as one of the five semifinalists to move forward. And then we were supposed to work intensively and did work intensively after that for a period of about three months on taking those ideas and developing it into what we had here, a daily disease report to a One Health alert system. So we spent the next three months taking those ideas and working with them, building that framing idea in that Meredith talked about. How can we define each of these areas and define each of these ideas using only symptom data. And that's, what, in essence, what we did. The, the outcome, which was genuinely surprising and amazing, is we got it down to 10 minutes. If we could find something going on in our two-county community, we could get a report out in 10 minutes. And that took our curve from 12 hours to 10 minutes in a hurry. So we were really pleased with that. The part that we couldn't and weren't successful and combining with it was the addition of the predictive analytics and figuring out how we could then take what we knew instantaneously, quantifying that data using predictive analytics to then say, the next flu outbreak will come in October next year in our community. We weren't able to do that. And that's for probably all intents and purposes is the reason we weren't the final winner of the prize because we just couldn't. We tried every way in the world to figure it out and we couldn't. It's an exciting area. Uh, There's a lot of opportunity there. When you consider that traditionally, epidemiologists, which is the branch of science that we entrust figuring out if there's something going on that we all need to know of and be aware of, they're essentially chasing the digestive cycle in people's bodies and then backtracking from there. And, And the amount of time involved in that is severe. If there's another challenge that opens up, I think the team's ready to go back at it again. The one area that you, uh, you guys actually are having a hard time implementing is the predictive analytics into the, could you just explain that a little more? What, where, where are you having the, the hiccup right now? The best way to describe where the hiccup is, is that in order to take predictive analytics in this particular area, as Stephen said, that's an epi area, epidemiology area, you must know more than symptom data. We were using symptomatic fever, nausea, vomiting, those kinds of things to to tell us whether or not we had something going on in our community. That doesn't translate into what the later data proves really was happening in our community, the two or three day old data. To take that and use it in predictive analytics required a very laborious application of mathematical capability that Javion is able to do, but not able to do unless we could get that kind of data in more than one two county area. So we tried to upscale our system and look at it in 12 different regions in the United States. The cost of upscaling that system and providing that kind of predictive analytics based data that we needed was extraordinarily expensive, about $300,000 per geographical area. To replicate that nationwide would been the tens of millions. We could not expect DHS or anyone else to spend that kind of money on a, an idea that was not proven at that point in time. So the, the challenge left is, is there a way to take the data in a smaller area, geographically or otherwise, 
demonstrate that it works and move forward with that concept? Or is there the idea that, and I've moved on and working with a program at Harvard now, the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative there, where the team I'm on there is working on taking some of the same ideas we had and moving it to a public notification system. Because right now we only have health notification systems. You, for example, don't get a health alert. You don't get an EPX alert. But what we're talking about is a third standalone system beside those two that comes out of DHS, not CDC, which is the Department of Health and Human Services. But that's that alert would go to any public member who enrolls in it on their phone and would tell them there are these symptoms going on in your community and please enter any data that you can enter in and can we verify that kind of data. So that's where we are on that part of the process. So that's a kind of a third step to where does this go now? And maybe if we get that kind of data into it, we can go back to the predictive analytics thing we were trying to do because we'll have enough data being pumped into a system on a constant basis. So that would give us the information we need to do what Angie was talking about earlier, take this system further than it is now because the cost is the data cost. And we just don't, you know, the four of us, yeah, we won $20,000. That didn't start paying the cost of something like this. Yeah. So it sounds to me that you guys looked at an area that needed work, obviously, since DHS had a competition uh, and made a lot of advancements in identifying different symptomology that in geographical areas, but then you can't get the predictive analytics to, to mesh with it. Now you've moved into having another group of people looking at it and you think after that, you'll be able to bring it maybe back and then continue forward. Is it just getting more professionals involved to try to address it different ways? What, what's, what do you think is going to be able to make this actually work or are we going to get to a place that it's not going to move forward? I think what we've got to get it to is a place where the Centers for Disease Control understand the reason why DHS issued this challenge. And that was because they aren't getting the information they need in rapid ways. What you just said is exactly what I would hope. I would let the other team members speak for themselves, but I would hope more professionals in the Homeland Security Enterprise get interested in this problem and how we can solve it so that they can put their heads together and try to figure out what is the solution to a system that in Dallas, Texas, a gentleman shows up on a Saturday night in a hospital with a fever of 104. He's come from Africa which is endemic with Ebola at the time. And no one in that hospital thought we might need to keep him in the ED. He should be sent home. And then they find out a couple of days later, he had Ebola. And we ended up having our first case in the U.S. And fortunately, no one else contracted it besides the health professionals that treated him, who treated him unprotected, because again, it didn't work as the system should work. So we are, I think what we were hoping is, to issue our, in some respects, our own health alert to this nation, that it's not satisfactory to wait 36 hours to know we have an outbreak in this country, and that there are ways we can do this better, but it requires different entities like Javion coming in from the private sector, different sectors as the four of us are from the Homeland Security Enterprise, all work together, as well as CDC working with the Department of Homeland Security so that we can all say, this is a problem, put everybody's head together, solve it, because we've already proven in a two-county area, we can get it down to 10 minutes, which is pretty phenomenal. But so if we can get it down to 10 minutes here, and we were able to do it because we had the brainpower of these four people to do it, 
but we already had a system in place that had a 50% there that was already paid for by someone else. So what we need is that kind of um, energy and initiative that we don't have to go beyond doing this in a two-county area and getting a partner that has a, a really complex understanding of how the epi aspect of predictive analytics requires more information than we have now. This is a long-winded answer, sorry. <laughs> no, that's, that's okay, because uh, I'm, I'm the master of long-winded answers, so I can appreciate it personally. Looking at what you guys have done, and application in your two-county area, which has been nice to see, how is it that we could really address maybe our vulnerable populations with this type of information? Uh, you already said that you can do an application possibly on your phone, um, like mass notification things. But is there a way of ensuring or, or stepping up the ability to protect our very young or very old or persons with disabilities? Or is there a way of getting information out there for non-English speaking people that we could decrease the chances of spread of whatever disease it might be? Do you think this would be able to address those type of concerns for the communities that may be more at risk? Um, so I think one of the things that's exciting about this is hearing how Will's kind of working with a new group to see what can be done to move it forward. So I look at this in terms of if I look in the rearview mirror, we've identified here's the areas that we didn't make progress. We definitely need to get better data. We need to figure out how to get that data out to the system because we know that the system works. And, and I'll use an example of just basic healthcare information. We don't have universal systems for chief complaint for someone walking in to an emergency room across the country. So starting to mesh together those things in the background are the step that needs to happen in terms of some of the predictive pieces. In terms of the messaging, I think that's an interesting question because the messaging can actually be done whether or not we know about the incidents. The question is, how do we time it so that it's the most effective public service message that goes out there. And I think that's where I look to those people with the expertise in public health to say, even if I don't have the exact predictive piece established yet, I think that we can use what we've learned from it to say, when we have it in a very small community, such as the counties that it's running in, here are the steps that we could take that can help stop the spread. I think Will might be able to give some examples of that. We've talked about the fact that oftentimes you can predict what's going to happen in one school based on what's happening in a, another school because you may have younger children at one school and you start to see those patterns. So that really identifies that emergent pattern for that maybe older school where those older siblings are. And Will, did you want to maybe elaborate on that example? Sure. That's, and that's when we, we hit our goal and, and got it, this thing down to 10 minutes. What we found is we were able to take, and this was a simple case of nausea with vomiting in one location in the community. We took that information and were able to send an alert out to our local medical community in this two-county area saying, this is what we have. Angie mentioned earlier, one of the other things we added to this system was veterinarians often are seeing animals with diseases of human significance, that they send the person to their PCP, their primary care physician. And we said, well, that's golden too. We capture that information. Then we know we may have something of health significance coming from animals, which is Angie said earlier, is where a lot of it comes from already. And we're not tracking that in any way. So we added that to the system as well so that we could see alerts there. So if our veterinarians were seeing 30, 40 people and sending them to see their PCPs, that would kick into our system as well, and we would know we'd have something of animal significance. So we've already proven that we can see it and make it work and that it, we, it actually issues alerts. 
on that basis than rapid fire. We also can see, as Meredith was saying, just taking our school systems. If we see something growing in a school on a two or three day basis, it would often take us two or three weeks to notice there was a trend in our community. We've cut that curve down easily to two days. So we know that we've got a flu outbreak on the rise. This is how many schools it's going to affect. This is the next school it's going to affect. This is the next school it's going to affect. And it's pretty easy to do that when you have this kind of alert system going. So again, the challenge is scaling it. We know it works. How do you scale it? How do you get this kind of system built up in another community that didn't have the initial infrastructure to do it like we did? So that does bring one question sort of in my mind is the speed. And everyone in the United States, we love things to be done super fast, whether it's our food, our cars, or what have you. We try to find ways of increasing speed for everything. Part of increasing speed, sometimes we miss out on something. And if if the CDC takes up to 36 hours to definitively identify what the pathogen may be, could we run into a boy who cried wolf syndrome when we're getting something out in, say, 10 minutes? I mean, is, is that possible factor? Or do you guys try to build in something to fix? That is an excellent question. That's one of the things that happened with Google Flu. They tried to use predictive text analytics and get out flu alerts. And that's why they pulled it. And it's no longer working. They, and we talked to the folks at Google and they told us the number of false positives are too great. So when you break it down and get it down, that, that was our challenge. And that's what we were able to do. We were able to get it down to a reasonable time but also have accuracy. There's the old triangle, cheaper, faster, better, pick two. And that's essentially what this, com- this, this is the same problem. So if we want it faster and we want it better, it won't be cheaper. And that's the dilemma we came to. We want it faster and we want it better, in translating this case to accuracy, but it can't be cheaper. It's going to be expensive. This is Angie. Will, I was so happy to hear you talk about taking this project to Harvard in your program and looking at how you could actually give alerts to the public. Because in our project, we were actually trying to identify a real threat that was already on the ground occurring. But I think there is value in being able to say to a particular community, we see this happening in the environment. We have some reported cases of sickness in animals and we also are seeing a spillover effect from animals to people. This community may be at risk. And in my mind's eye, I'm looking at a red, green, and yellow. It's important, I think, with people, if you have this community is at risk for this, please be aware of these kinds of symptoms. I think that's valuable information. Even if you can't say with 100% certainty that you're going to experience that, but you can, that triad of environment, people, and animals, you can say these, these kinds of things are aligning and that your community may be at risk of X. And I'm thinking of Lyme's disease because, as an example, because with the climate warming, we're seeing ticks move into areas that we have never seen them move into before. In colder climates, they're seeing ticks they've not seen. So we know that ticks carry Lyme disease. And so Lyme disease is spreading into Canada and some other places where they've never seen it before. I think there is value in saying because the climate is warming, we are seeing the migration of ticks into particular areas, and your community may be at risk of X, and we want you to start thinking about that. To me, that's valuable information. Yeah, I wholly agree with you. I think the more information people have, it allows them to make educated decisions on what they want to do for themselves and their families. 
my only concern was is, is how is it going to be put out and is it going to be a point that some people actually get panicked over that information? One of the things we did do, Frank, was we looked at, there's several things, sick weather. There's a bunch of apps out there. We looked at all the apps and all the applications that were considered good and all of them have the failing in that there's no verification system. You decide as Frank, I'm going to enter that I'm sick and I'm feeling like crap today. And I've got a fever of 104. We can't confirm you had a fever of 104. You may have a fever of 99 and feel like crap. So those systems, then you can go online and put your zip code in. It'll tell you how many people are feeling like that on all these apps. But that's just one more verification system. What we hope to have done for if we further develop the system and had better data is to combine the data from all those apps and compare it to what we came up with and see we know here that we have 66 people with vomiting and diarrhea that occurred in the last hour. Does that correlate to what people are putting in social media or not? But again, that's knowing you have to look at Frank's account and other people's account that you have access to and how many accounts can you get access to? Cause otherwise you're back into the three day old data. So that's the issue. I think you answered my questions on that pretty well, actually. I do want to say that I I really appreciate all of you and the time and effort that you put into not only this program and developing it, but also for joining me on the show today. Is there anything maybe that we haven't thought about or something you wanted to add? Angie, if I could start with you that maybe we didn't hit, and if you have anything, please go with it. And then after Angie, if you guys would like to offer anything additional. Well, thank you, Frank. Thanks for having us on the podcast today. I would just say that just emphasizing the holistic approach to looking at disease is important. Uh, We chose the One Health system because it accounted for environmental health and animal health. And we, we continue to feel that that is an important dynamic in keeping our communities healthy. As we know that changes in land use are the driver of ecosystems that are not in equilibrium. We see that happening a lot of times with the climate change and the drastic hurricanes and severe weather that we're having all over the country and the flooding. That means that the environment is changing and that affects the animals that live in that environment. And eventually that affects people that live in that environment. And I just think that we need to continue to talk about and encourage human physicians to talk to veterinarians, to talk to epidemiologists and weather people about how they are interconnected. It's an interdisciplinary thing to keep our communities healthy. Great. Anyone else? I was reminded in this process of the master's program where we were assigned Rafe Sagarin's book about learning from the biological world, which talks about the Steinbeck research that was done in the Monterey Bay area. And the takeaway from that is look at all the different areas and disciplines that you can bring to bear on the subject in front of you. And as I've worked on other grant challenges with other of my HSX classmates, and as I've done other projects as well, that's something that has really stuck with me. It's something I think served us well in the course of this process, because I don't think we would have gotten as far as we did without that cross-disciplinary approach that we learned in programs at the Center for Homeland Defense and Security and that we honed in the HSX program. Yeah, that was very nicely said, Steve. Frank, thank you very much for taking the time to give us a chance to speak about this. For me, I think as I kind of look back and Will talked about the large scope of this project, in some ways, 
while it was a challenge, it gave us a lot of opportunities. And I think there's two areas that are kind of my takeaways from this that I know I need to dig in and, and research a little bit deeper. And I think that's really the exciting pieces. I think all of us are still looking at our different elements, the things that we really engaged in to see how we can kind of keep this moving. So for me, that first one, it, it has a little bit to do with finding that balance between effective alerting, avoiding messaging fatigue or over messaging of people so that they become alarmed by things. But then also, how do we tie that in with the citizen engagement? So how do you have that effective crisis communication that also is that two-way communication? Because the data was our biggest challenge in the end. So having better ways to get that data from the public in a way that can be validated is certainly an area that I continue to kind of poke at and think, how can I make some change in that? But the second one that really caught my interest in it, and it's an area that I'll continue to work on, is are there other ways that we could be collecting passive data? So what do we have in terms of sensor networks that are out there or potentially could be developed that could add value to this overall picture? And I think that's the nicest thing about it is that even though we say the work is done, we kind of wrapped up this project, it really won't ever be done because I think it left us all with this natural curiosity for saying, hey, how does that piece that Angie's working on fit into what I'm doing? How does that piece about transportation influence this? What, what do I need to think about in terms of Steve's work or Will's work that I might add to this in the end? And to me, that was really the greatest gift of the program as I left with this passion for engaging in this multidisciplinary approach and to keep on chasing down these problems and just have the conversations with people that you might meet, whether it's at a conference, whether it's professionally, where you say, oh, you do predictive analytics. I worked on a project. What can you tell me about what you're doing so that we keep that learning exchange going? Wow. Uh, I appreciate that. Will, do you have anything you'd like to add before we wrap up here? I think you can see from the, what you just heard from those three, we took on a tremendous challenge. And because of the unique skills this team brought to that table, we solved that challenge. And we solved it in three weeks. That was the first part of it, because that's all we had to begin with. Then the intensive part that began was how do you build a learning system that grows and develops itself. And we were able to do that in an area that is extraordinarily complex with unlimited variables. And to do that in such a compacted time required the three people you just heard from to do that. And it was a joy and a pleasure to work with them because as Meredith described earlier, when we were all downstairs laying everything out on sticky notes here and there, we realized we've got to start putting the puzzle together. Some of these pieces have to start matching because it's a hard problem to solve, basically. And we started solving it. As we started solving parts of it, we built the system. And Meredith then built the framework for it. And as Stephen said, we got all these skills through the HSX and the Homeland Security Master's Degree Program. And to see them all come together and produce a product was really refreshing. I appreciate that. And I want to just again, thank all of you for joining us on the show today. I have all of your contact information. So if anyone wants to reach out to you and get additional information about something, we will put that in the show notes so that that's available. But with that, again, thank you all. So there you have it. One Health Alert System. Angie English, Meredith Bastiani, Will Pilkington, 
and Stephen Polensky. I find it exciting to know that we can provide actionable, accurate, and timely information to the public in a significantly reduced amount of time. All it's going to take is for somebody to come in, pick up where this team left off, work out the last bit of details, and provide that information for messaging to the public. Now, if you want to get a hold of any of the members from this team for any additional information, I'll place their contact information within our show notes. One last request. If you enjoy the show, please share it. Share it with your friends, share it with your coworkers. Any new listenership, we'd greatly appreciate. And with that, until our next show, take care.